So the first thing that I you know, want to bring up is everybody that I've talked to pretty much, and I know that that's a big you know, concentration of potential people there when I say everybody, um, I'm specifically talking about guys that I know that are passionate about waterfowl hunting and chasing ducks and geese. The first word that everybody is saying is, you know, it was a weird year. A lot of them say it was the hardest year that we've ever had. It was the worst year we've ever had. I'm talking guys from all four different flyways, all different parts of the country. Even outfitters in Canada were telling me how tough it was for them in certain aspects, of, especially when it comes to lessers or snow geese. We'll get into that. But what are you seeing? You, you've spent most of your season in Texas, which is at the bottom of the flyway. Was it a weird year? Was it a tough season? Was it the worst season you've ever had? Talk to me a little bit. You know, it definitely was a weird season. Um, we actually had a really, really good season where we were. Um, we had a lot of birds. The first big storm that came across pushed a lot of birds to us. We also had record rainfall, which is good. We'd been in a drought for the last seven, eight years. And, you know, I think from September 6th to September 30th, we got 32 inches of rain. So there's there's lake beds that are full of water where we are in Texas um, that haven't, haven't, haven't had water in 25 years. So, you know, water and waterfowl kind of goes hand in hand. So we had a lot of birds. Um, definitely a weird migration. Um, and the reason I'd say weird migration is, for instance, one day... Um, Cody grounds that I work with he and I um we had a flock of birds come in and he and I both killed a greenhead out of this flock that came off the ends of the line that guys made it past the hunters and both of the greenheads we killed were banded one was banded in Iowa two years ago and the other one was banded in western Colorado that's two different flyways yeah like how's that happen um you know not a lot of juvies like you said, the lessers and the snow geese, obviously, um, speckle bellies as well. Not a lot of, not a lot of babies this year, but that's all part of that storm that came across, you know, when the babies were, when the baby geese on the Arctic tundra were days old, uh, days old, you know, they got a foot of snow and they killed them all. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't necessarily a bad hatch. It was just bad storm that smoked the hatch after they were born. Right. Like it's, it's tough to say whether the hatch was bad or not because what did hatch died you know, for the most part, um, it was, you know, it was tough. I know, I know, um, like where you hunt in Oklahoma, they, you know, they're, you're not far from where we are. Um, and you guys, you guys had the same issue we did, which was the, there was geese there. They were just veterans, you know, they, they knew the program. They were smart. They weren't doing the same thing every day where we were, which made it tough just because there was so much water, they were pond hopping every day. And so there was wheat fields that were flooded and, and they'd roost in there and then they'd just walk up into the wheat and eat. Yeah. They weren't, they weren't having to fly like they normally do. So when you talk about when you, the Oklahoma and you start bringing that into the mix, I remember specifically getting calls from Oklahoma early, like mid November, man, best November on record. It's the, the, the geese are here. We're killing, you know, way more than we usually do this time of year. And I'm, I'm thinking realistically like, well, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, the beginning of what could be 
a bad deal for, you know, guys down in that flyway. And sure enough, it ended up happening to where December got there. And, you know, those storms early in Canada and the Dakotas, and I'm talking two feet of snow that pushed a lot of birds south faster than they, you know, relatively speaking, at least for the last few years. Now, Oklahoma and Texas are, they're just abundant with ducks and geese that early. And sure enough, what happens? Pressure on them. They get educated quick. It takes a little bit more time for the next push of birds to get there, if they're going to get there at all, or did they all already come through? And th- there was places that early January and, and a lot of December were tough in that part of the country. Even Arkansas was in the same boat. With Ducks got there early. They're like, oh, my God, this is unreal for the numbers early. And then all of a sudden, the, the rivers kind of went back into their banks. They start, stopped getting the rainfall that they were getting. And the Ducks were like, hey, we're out of here. A lot of them, I feel, went back north. A lot of them went to the Boot Hill of Missouri, maybe. A lot of them went back even further north into Missouri, up into the Kansas City area. So did, is that what you were seeing that, you know, it looked like it looked promising? Oh my gosh, the numbers are huge. It's going to be a great year. And then all of a sudden they're like, wow, you, you shoot at those birds for a week. They get educated. Mm-hmm. There wasn't a lot of juvie lessers in that part of Oklahoma. Like you said, you experienced in Texas, snow geese, same spec, same. It, it was, it was, it was tricky because you thought that it was going to be, you know, we were off and running and then all of a sudden it dried up quick. Is that what happened in Texas too? Yeah. And you know, it, 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 it looked really good, you know, right there, right around Thanksgiving, a week before Thanksgiving, because we had this huge influx of birds, and it was like, man, this this could turn into something really special, and and it did in its own way, you know. I mean, I I definitely think this season is a season that, uh, you know, people like myself and yourself, like, you know, and and the guys that I work with, you know. There's a lot of learning that went on this season, just from the standpoint of geese don't constantly get smarter. My good friend Eric Guggenheim told me this, and he's one of the smartest people I know. He goes, they don't get smarter. They get conditioned. So you had to constantly think of how to throw them curveballs, stuff they hadn't seen, you know, whether it be calling, decoy sets, whatever, you know, because we were hunting the same geese, particularly where I am in Texas. Like, we had that huge influx of birds, and they were there until the end of the season. Like we got a few more new ones, but not many. And so that, that that makes it tough when you're hunting the same birds for, you know, two and a half, three months. So how do you, when you say you had a good season, how, and this is what I wanted to get into today, because when, when you think about what you do as opposed to what I do, and I go to a certain spot and I can kind of, I, you know, luckily I can pick and choose the days that I get to hunt. If it's raining outside, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to take that chance with all of the equipment that we tout around, you know, of messing something up. Plus, it's it's very hard to get ducks to be ducky, I believe, on rainy, cloudy days. I don't, they're just, they don't act right. With, there's no sunshine and, and cold temperatures and wind, and they sure as heck don't look right. But as an outfitter, as a guide, you don't have that choice. You're dealing with guys that have booked these hunts out a year in advance, you know, months in advance, at least, if not a year maybe two years, they've been looking forward to this trip. They don't give a shit. They're loading up on the plane. They've been packing their gear for a week. They're from coming from Carolina. They're coming from somewhere where it might not have as good a waterfowl hunting, but they still have that burning desire to have good hunts every year. So as an outfitter, you have to get together with your team. And as a guide, you got to be like, hey, what do we got to do? We got to figure out. Do we need to throw a curveball at these geese, the decoy spreads? Are we going to pass shoot them? Are we going to shoot them coming in from side to side, across shoot them a little bit? Are we going to put our decoys way downwind 
whatever. What's going through your mind? Set, set this up for me as an outfitter. Is it the scouting? Is it nonstop? Do you have to get out of your comfort zone and go into different areas and talk to new landowners because you got to find different places to get on birds because the birds in, your, in the area you're so used to being in, your general area, are so overpressured because they've been there so long. What's going on? What happens in an outfitter's mind when he's like, guys, it's Thanksgiving and we still got 80 days left and we're booked out every day like you guys are. Set it up for me a little bit on, on, on the mentality of a company like that and how you continue to have success daily. You know, the biggest thing, like anywhere, is scouting. Um, you know, in the area that we're in, is uh, there's, there's a lot of pressure in a relatively small area. And, um, you know, one of the things that we do that I see... A lot of other areas um, lacking cooperation with the other outfitters in the area. We work together with one of the outfitters in the area. Talk to them every day. You know, they're good friends. They, um, but we work together. We make sure we don't cut each other off. If somebody's hunting this field, we know just because of the small area that it's going to push birds to this field. So we'll work together and hunt fields away from each other but we're going to bounce birds back and forth right that's one thing um the other thing where we are is wind you know wind direction can uh can dictate what fields are going to hunt real well particularly if it's a good wind because you can it's hard to run traffic in our area just because the geese don't fly very far so they you know they just kind of it's it's like being on a puddle it's like flying from reno to san francisco like or reno to vegas like you just go up and down that's their program so running traffic makes it difficult you get a hard wind it kind of breaks them up pushes them down and you can you can decoy them in fields that they've been in but the majority of the birds aren't in um you know we do that as far as getting outside our area we pretty much stay in 25 or 30 square mile area i mean that's that's where all the birds are it's in the peanut country there and um it's you know you definitely have to look at ways to show them different stuff whether it be how you're hiding what decoys you're using you know how you're setting up the spread um you know i try not to show them the same thing every day and, and I see a lot of people do that. And a lot of people have success with that. But where we are, it, it's, um, they get wise to it, you know. They just get conditioned. So is what keeps you in the money, what keeps your success rate up, is it, sure, is it just the sheer concentration of birds, the amount of birds in that peanut country that up your odds every day? Or, I mean, are you talking about you have plenty of options daily, meaning you go out the night before and you scout and you might find five or 10 feeds or you might find one huge Mondo feed. You just set it up for me, John David, on what did it take to be successful this year? Because the overall consensus across the country in every flyway, I'm talking the, the, the Columbia Basin of Washington, Idaho, California was hot at certain times, but even they, they struggled for a while. Arkansas, say there's people that are saying it's the worst season that we've seen on record in Arkansas. There was a couple areas that consistently got them. 
Oklahoma, Texas, my guys in Kansas said the same thing. What, what did it take to be successful to where these, the, the clients were happy? Because again, as an outfitter, you can't pick when you hunt. You got to be up in the morning and putting on a game face and putting on your A game for those paying clients. So was it the sheer amount of birds in that part of Texas? Or was it because you guys are just that good of hunters and outfitters that you were, that you were able to get them every day? It's, it's a little bit of both. You know, the biggest thing for us and our success is our leases. You know, it, everything where we are is leased, season leased. So, you know, m- my boss, Justin, does his homework, and it, and it's it's strictly in the properties, you know. Um, and, we, and we're fortunate enough that, you know, most of the birds roosted on properties that we lease. So when you control the roost, you control the area. And very rarely did we hunt the roost, you know. So the the biggest thing for us is is was trying, you know, we, we were fortunate and we had enough geese and we could, we'd have, say, four or five feeds on average on our properties. Well, you'd go through and you'd hide grade those feeds. All right, they've been in this field one day. They've been in this field two days, both morning and afternoon, or they've been in this field for a week. We should hunt the one they've been in in a week because they're going to eat it out if we don't get them out of there. So then, you know, during the week when we'd have one group, you know, you go hunt that big feed and then, and then it pushes those birds to your other feeds. And then you hunt the feed that's been going on the longest the next day. And you just keep rolling it. So you're constantly hunting birds that have patterned on fields. You, you We're very rarely hunting birds that we saw go into a field for the first time the night before. Never, we never do that. They're always, we always watch them go in there for a full day, both morning and afternoon, at least one day, most likely two before we hunt them. But it's because we have leases, you know, that, that's what allows us to let those fields sit. Nobody else can get permission on them. Nope. Now are these day leases or are they season leases? Season leases. So you guys have them locked up for the whole season. Mm-hmm. So when you say in that you very rarely, you know, scout the night before and hunt that field, it, it could happen. But what, what is it, a, an outfitter like of your guys' status? And, and I want you to talk a little bit about that status and how long you guys have been in business and what's going on in that part of the country. Because peanut field hunting in Texas is awesome. Mm-hmm. How many birds are we talking about when, that, when those leased fields build up before you say, yes, we're going in there before this amount of geese eats every peanut in this field and they're out of there we got to get at least one good hunt on them how how many are you talking you know for where we are there's um we have a lot of speckle bellies so we look at the ratio of specks to canadas but i mean if you go to a field that's got you know three thousand specks and three or four thousand canadas like it's a hunt you know sometimes it's bigger than that you know i mean sometimes half of the geese in the area will be going into one field and one peanut field and there will be you know 30 or 40,000 geese in a circle like it's it's insane but you got but when you get in that in that situation like you have to hunt them it's just too many mouths they'll eat the whole field out and it'll be done you know and then we also have to look at it as keeping them out so that we constantly have food from the, you know the middle of November until the end of January. So we got to hunt those fields. You can't let them rest or sit in there too much because you need to hunt them. Okay. So let's say that you, 
you get in that instance where you have to hunt a huge feed like that. It's a mondo feed. It's 20, 30, 40. Th- and that, it sounds like a lot, but relatively speaking, a lot of times you see snow geese in those kind of numbers. But to see lessers and specs like that, there's not very many places in the country that you're going to see that kind of a buildup. Oklahoma is one. You know, Texas obviously is one. There's places in Arkansas where you'll see 10,000 specs. Kansas, you can see, you know, oh, yeah. 10,000, 15, 20,000 darks in a field. But what what is the what is the mentality when you go in on a hunt like this? Meaning, guys, there's 30, 40,000 geese coming to this field. They're not all going to come at once. There's going to be a two-hour flight in the morning. You go in there and you smoke them quick. Do you let your clients just go to town? What's the limit of dark geese in Texas? Five. Okay, so you can kill five. Is that a combination of Canada's and specs? Five total. No more than two can be specs. No more than two. So you got, let's say you got a, and what's a normal group? Eight guns, 10 guns? What's Our what's average normal? group's probably 10 to 12. 10 to 12 guns. So you got 10 times five. My math is correct. I think it's 50 birds. Mm-hmm. If there's 30,000 in there, 50 is a very, very small amount. Just a, a, a nick, right? Yeah. You get in there and smoke them as soon as those first flocks come in, get your decoy spread, get the trucks in the field, get out of there ASAP. Or do you sit there and let them all come in and feed and feed out? Do you walk out and get in the trucks and go eat breakfast and come back and pick up the spread how does that work to where all of those other geese that are that are used to coming to that field because you let it build up for a few days and those peanuts how do you ensure that they're going to come there and sit and you're not going to mess anything up even though you've shot the first four or five groups and got your limit so generally what we do is we shoot them and get out of there pick everything up you keep them out of there in the morning they'll get back in there um you know but we you try to get everything picked up and show them as little as possible. You know, obviously the fewer flocks you can get done in, the better off you are as far as educating birds to your spreads, to, to your hides, to your calling, everything. Um, so we get in and get out as fast as we can. And, and what is that? Are you telling me that if those other geese are, are coming off of the roost and they see your trucks in there and all these human beings picking up this spread of plastic, de- you know, de- mm-hmm. decoys, they might go and fly around. They might go back to water. They might not be comfortable. It might, they might associate that with a farmer or a combine or some equipment out there. As long as they're not coming in all cupped up like, oh, I'm getting ready to grub, and then all these barrels come up and let loose on them and wreck their day and kill a bunch of their buddies, that's probably the only thing that's going to mess them up good to where they, the, that evening they might get back in there because they're like, man, I'm going back in there. Nothing scared me. It just didn't look right tonight. It didn't look right this morning, I mean, right? Exactly. I think it's it's no different than, you know, like when you're hunting hunting a, a big mule deer or whatever, you know, you 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 kick him up, you, you bust him out of his bed or whatever, or, or he knows you're there and he's nervous, his escape route works, he's going to come back in there. You know, they, nothing negative happened. There was just something going on in the field. So they... They push. They go to other fields. That's fine. It's it's when, you know, what what hurts us is when other people, some of the locals, the few of the locals that hunt around there, they'll they'll get on a fence line or something and they shoot at every goose that tries to go into a field, or even worse, you know, guys put out a bunch of decoys and then pass shoot over them. What's the point in putting out seventy dozen decoys to pass shoot, like? All you're doing is educating them to everything. A hundred percent you're educating them. But you, what about the mentality now is the customer service part of being an outfitter? Are you, are you open and, you know, vocal with your clients of, Hey guys, 
we're going to get out of here quick this morning. We'll go find somewhere else to set the geese up and take a picture. Mm -hmm. Are you taking a lot of pride in what you offer the client as far as like, hey, we want this experience to be legit to where we want you to take home good pictures. And I know that you're huge on photos now and your camera. So are you, I, I could see you out there being like, hey, let's get these on straps. Let's go find an old barn. Let's go find an old tractor. Let's go find a tree. Let's get it set up. Um, or are you stacking them up in the field and taking your time and lollygagging around in the field? Or are you like, hey, get the spread up and let's get out of here? Because you got to be careful because you don't want your clients to feel like, man, we, got, we, you know, we don't want to be rushed. You, don't want, you want everybody to be safe and happy and content, right? So are you thinking like, hey, let's just do it and whatever happens, happens. These geese are going to come back in here. Or are you just a mess? Because I know the stresses of guiding and outfitting. What's going through your mind in that? Do you do you let them take their time and stay in the field for a while? Or are you like, let's get the hell out of here? You know, it depends on the day. Um, just on the situation and how things are going. You know, if we got a bunch of options, you know, I probably would take pictures in the field. Get everything picked up and then take pictures in the field. That being said, if it's a... You know, if it's a small field kind of off the beaten path and, and there's a bunch of geese using it, I will kind of light a fire under the guy's asses and be like, hey, like we need to pick these decoys up. We'll go take pictures at the edge of the field. But we need to get all this stuff out of here so they can get back in here. And most of the time, you know, you just make them understand. And then they're, they're cool with it because obviously you're providing a good service for them that day. But then you make them realize that, you know, you're you're looking towards tomorrow and the next group and that it's that it's not just it's in there when it, it's not just when it works it works and when it doesn't it doesn't that's not the operation that we run like we want everybody to have fantastic hunts you know it's yeah i mean I, it gets it, tricky it's, it really it's, well and it's a hard way to say it without just really stepping on anybody's toes but you know i mean there's there's no reason to beat around the bush like there are outfitters out there that run them through like sheep yeah and if you it's get them you get game. them you get them you get them and if you don't you don't thanks for coming out yeah and that's not and that's, that's where i'm that's going not with our all, program that's like, where i'm going just, with all this is like you know what separates a good outfitter a good set of guides a good company a good organization a good network a good brand that's out there for the right reasons. And it's not just a number game because you, these guys that are booking hunts and they bring in their kids and their spouses and their family and their friends and corporate events and outings. And, and they've been, I'm telling you, we look at it like, man, we've been seeing these geese and these decoy spreads and these hides and this calling and these cleaning all these geese and cooking another meal in the lodge. And we gotta, you gotta keep it in mind that man, we, aren't the norm we see it every day and we mm -hmm. tend to maybe take it for granted sometimes i try not oh, for to. sure but these guys are this is their yearly trip they're coming to texas they've been they've been cooped up looking at wood ducks on a creek in, in south of charleston south carolina for two months now they're coming to rip some you know get some big flocks of lessers and specks and mallards and widgeons and what texas is known for and you you're like Man, I've been here doing this for days, but you can't be that guy. You got to make sure that when they get there, they're just like you. Like if you were going in there with your family, like what you want to experience, right? So you can't rush them. You got to do things right. And there's, there's being honest and open with them, obviously, is the best thing. Saying, hey, guys, if we get out of here quick, we can maybe hunt this field tomorrow, let it rest, hunt it the day after tomorrow. I know you guys just paid for a three-day hunt. We want to get in and get out. But is it fun to shoot a bunch of 
lessers before the sun comes up. You want to shoot 10 when you could wait for a big grind of 400 that are going to light in. There's so many variables, so many questions that go through a guide's and an outfitter's mind. It's, 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 you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. If you stay in there too long, you might mess up the hunt for the next day and that's going to potentially put a, a sour taste in an out, a, a, a paying client's mouth. When you want every day to be a hammer, when realistically it's not going to be. But and, it is to them. Yeah, and you, want, and you want, but you want them understanding clients to be like, hey, we get it. But you got to, it's, it's, it's all about that communication, right? So when you, when you have, have it going on, talk to me a little bit about when you know you're on the X and you got one of these lease fields and there's a ton of lessers and specs in there, can you kill them with five dozen decoys in Texas? Can you kill them with a dozen? <laughs> there's places in the country where you, you, you get that late season, that reverse migration going on, which Texas is the beginning of the reverse migration in ja late January and February. What's a normal decoy spread that you're putting out in the morning? Our average spread's probably 70 to 120 dozen. Of rags and full bodies mixed or what? Silhouettes. All silhouettes. Silhouettes and socks. So no full bodies. We hunt full bodies later in the year, but that there again, like that's something you try to hold on to until you have to use it, right? Yeah, ace in the pole, like keeping an ace up your sleeve. Yep. Yeah, but I mean, there's there's definitely times where, you know, later in the season, hunting water holes, you use a lot less decoys, a lot less concentrate on a hide or if i have a good edge to hunt i can use a lot less decoys so a good edge meaning what a weed fence line, line fence line fence line and then you make a false line of weeds tumbleweeds mm -hmm. yep branches you go and get Tumble natural weeds. vegetation and are you hiding in ground blinds are they panel blinds what do you got uh, going? blankets and chairs blankets and chairs do you mm -hmm. dig in a little bit nope so you just stuff decoys just, around all the blankets and chairs no you put the decoys out off of the fence line in ways just like geese do like they very rarely feed right up against the fence line right so you have that gap and then you build a tumbleweed edge, which most fence lines in West Texas or Oklahoma have tumbleweeds on them, right? Yeah. Um, and you just build a natural vegetation edge and hide in that. And, and how, how far is the first decoy out? The first line of decoys, how far from the fence or from the 15, 20 yards, 15 yards from your feet. So it'll be 30 yards to the edge of the hole, to the edge of the hole. Mm -hmm. And that's where you're killing most of the geese is well, right? The reason you do that, you leave that gap is particularly later in the year, those geese want to circle to the backside where the call-in's coming from, right? Like, I know you've experienced it, like hunting in Kansas, hunting layout blinds and fields or whatever. seems like later in the season you get, those geese will always, it's not that they want to finish behind you, but they'll slide and then come right across right behind everybody. Well, it's because they know that's where the danger comes from. So when you set that gap, when those geese slide around the backside of the decoys, they're at 12 yards. I mean, that's pretty self-explanatory on what happens from there. Like a lot of hard it's hard stuff. on them. It's, it can get real hard. Yeah. And what, what is the mentality behind flagging and calling in a, in, in, on an edge hunt like that? Are you flagging the entire time? Do you flag at all? Is it nonstop aggressive calling with specs? Are you time calling? Are you team calling? I know you're a badass on every kind of game call there is, especially a Canada goose call and a duck call. But I know you're very proficient with speckle belly calling too. Is it nonstop calling until their toenails are in that peanut dirt? Or explain to me a little bit about your your, folk, your your vision on that. You know, I my biggest thing is reading the birds and what they want to hear. You know, little geese in particular will 
more or less tell you what they want to hear. No different than big geese, but the the little geese where we are, um, they get a lot of calling. They, they they get a call blown at their face from day one until the last day of the season. And so I would call a lot less than most people, I would say. Um, team calling, you know, when, when I get the opportunity to hunt with, with Cody or Forrest or Justin or Googie or Brian, any of the guys that come hunt with us or work with me, um, you know, bouncing that sound from one end of the line to the other is, is huge, you know? Um, and I know you've done that. You and I have done that in Colorado when we were working there. Like it, it's, it, you know, it, that's just a deadly combination, you know, of two people clucking and moaning back and forth. Like it's, it's, and if, and if both people can read birds and one person listens to whoever the lead caller may be, and it changes like Cody and I have hunted together so much. Like if I see Cody making a sound and I see those birds reacting, I'm his backup. So I let him do it. And I throw sounds in when I know he's waiting for me. Right. And he does the same thing. And that's, that's huge. It's not, I know you and I have done it. I know it happens in the timber a lot is you, you put a bunch of really good call operators in a blind somewhere and everybody ends up, you play and follow the leader. So those birds go out and out of the timber is the best example. It's easiest to paint the picture, right? So you get those birds, you get them broke and they're swinging the hole and they'll be going out and someone will hit them and bank them. And the next guy will hit them again. And then he pushes them. And then the next guy, and then all of a sudden you're in this tug of war with each other where everybody's pushing and pulling. When if the other four callers would shut up when they saw that those ducks reacted to the first guy that called, They'll come in a lot faster and a lot more often. You know, you you can you can give them too much. You know, Tim Grounds always told us, like hunting in Colorado. I'll never forget it. He goes, these late season geese. He goes, you get their attention, get them swinging in the pits, then the hides that we have there are the best I've ever had anywhere in the world. Yeah, they are. And he goes, once you get them swinging, just shut up. They're gonna come. You already got their attention. Let them talk each other into it. Particularly when they start. Big geese and little geese when they start talking, and that's 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 what I was talking about about the little geese and reading them is if if they're coming out in the morning and they're quiet, they don't want to hear a lot of calling, not at all. I'll call specs, I'll call juvie specs in, and they'll follow them. If those little geese come out where we are and they're squawking and making a bunch of noise, they will react to a call nine times out of ten. But you still got to read them like you can't hammer them all the way to the ground. There are days when you can. But I'm not a big fan of once I see him calling until I call the shot, like hammering on him. And what I, about the what about the the hearing capabilities of Canada geese and specs when they get into those big numbers? Where I'm going with that is we're out that you're out there in your hide and you got these little calls that have only so much of a reach and they can get pretty loud. Mm-hmm. But when you start getting numbers of 500 to a thousand lesser Canada geese working your spread. Can they even hear your call? Can they still, are, are you still dictating what you're doing? Or are you just so like wired as a duck and goose hunter? Like you're talking about all these guys in the timber. Are you just wired that, Hey, I'm going to call no matter what. And I think that I'm turning them. I think I'm getting them to do things. Or by that time, is it just their natural reaction? Like what Tim was talking about? Just let them, just let them make the mistake themselves. Do we need to keep calling when, when it's that loud naturally with the live geese in the air? You, you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. And it, it's a really good question. Um, you know, generally when, 
when you get a big spin of geese going, you know, anything over 500 is a big spin. I don't care where you are. Um, you know, I let them do their thing, but I will give them, an, you know, you still, I will make very little noise, but when I do make noise, it's with purpose. And I look for a goose to react to it. Because if I can get one goose to react and I can get him to pick up off the point of decoys or wherever and come land in the hole, everybody's going to follow him. And that's, you know, that's where that reading birds comes in. And it's, you know, I get the opportunity to hunt, just like you, to hunt with a lot of really, really good callers and a lot of really good hunters out there. But there's really, when it comes down to it, there's, there's not near as many good bird readers as there are good callers. I, agree I don't 100%. think, you know, Keith, Christian, Jimbo, Trey, I mean, Tim, Hunter, you know, Forrest, Cody, like, you know, and there's, there's a lot of people that aren't getting mentioned because those are all big names. There's a lot of people out there that aren't recognized as good callers that are great duck killers. Yeah. You know? Because, because they can't get on a stage and do what you can do doesn't necessarily so. mean, right? Like, like, I know many guys that I hunt with that kill the heck out of ducks and puddle ducks because they let them make mistakes and they know when to call and what to call and they sound good enough. Like, you can't tell me that a hen mallard sounds like you or John Stevens on stage. I'm not saying that you guys aren't ducky as hell on a call, but there's you don't have to go out and be pitch perfect to kill mallard ducks or any kind no. of puddle duck for that. So what you're saying is pretty much... If you, if you take the time to start to develop instincts and read body language and knowing like what to say when, like getting birds in a race, you know, mm -hmm. I always hear it referred to these birds are in a race. They're racing to get to you now. Hunting them over dry fields is completely different hunting than hunting ducks over water. Hunting them on a river is completely different than hunting them over timber. Hunting them in peanuts in Texas is completely different than hunting lessers in corn. There's a lot of different factors. And if you start to break it down and start to understand that there's different applications that go into being successful in all of those different scenarios, then you really can start to say, man... I understand it. I'm a bird hunter. I'm a bird watcher. I'm a bird reader. I'm a body language reader. I'm negotiating with these birds because really just because I'm here and they were in this field yesterday, they still have hundreds of acres to go land in. And those fields in Canada, there's tons of different places for them to land in the same field. Same with a lot of the big checks in Texas, those big circles in Oklahoma mm -hmm. and Texas. It takes negotiation and learning how to read the instincts, the body language. What are their wingtips telling you? What is the speed of their wings telling you? What are their feet telling you? What is their neck and their beak, their vocalizations telling you? What is the, you know, what is the different things that are, you know, are affecting that hunt? You, you can go into that as well with sunshine and clouds and rain and wind and cold temperatures and warm. And are, are they staying, are they, are they coming there because they're transferring water in the morning? Or are they coming there to eat first thing? There's so many things that go into it that you could talk about. The calling is such a little part of it. And it's cool to hear somebody with what you've accomplished in calling, um, you know, say like, Hey, I might just hit a, a juvie speck with just a, a real quick hiccup and get the rest of them to follow him in when he cups in, because that visual of that bird cupped up and confidently coming into a decoy spread, 
that's going to get the attention of a lot of birds a lot more than just hearing another call is. Mm -hmm. So I think it's cool to hear you say like, you got to learn how to read birds. You got to understand instincts. And a lot of people, all they want to do is pick up the call and show you what vocalizations they can make with it. We've all been there. We've, we've been there, done that too of, man, listen to this, listen to this greeter, listen to this, listen to this, you know, this lonesome hen or listen to this bouncing hen or whatever. When really you don't need all of that to kill mallard ducks. It, you don't need it. It's or, a, it's or, a, it's a more lessers, you know, and I hear it and it's, you know, I mean, I may offend some people by saying it and I'm not putting myself on a high horse, but like particularly where the lessers are primarily being hunted now. So Kansas, Oklahoma, te Panhandle of Texas, you know, West Texas, there's a lot of people that are making a lot of noise on a, on a Canada call. And you know, the, the best goose killers I know in, in those areas make really good goose sounds. They can make as much noise as anybody. But I think day in, day out, good goose sounds are going to kill you more geese than a lot of noise. You know, I mean, just, just and it might just be me because I've, I've practiced the skills and I, I try to sound like different geese. Just the, just the hammering, I don't even know what, the, sound, the mad Indian. Yeah. Like the yodeling and the yeah, wall of sound. Yeah, they and just they just and it and it never stops. And it and and it 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 amazes me that it works, honestly. By the end of the season it's I can't believe people are still killing geese doing that. I think it works in some places. Mm-hmm. I still have this thing that's in my mind though of like I, I saw so many spins the last three years, right? Over peanuts of let I'm talking I've shot into some of the biggest and I'm like, I'm, th I'm looking at the outfitters going, you really want to shoot into these? And they're like, yes, uh, yeah, <laughs> yes. Shoot into them. And I'm like, God, isn't this going to ruin your geese? And they're like, no. And I, and again, that's learning in a different part of the country to where I would never do that in, in, in certain parts where I hunt. We right? don't either because so, we're hunting the same geese all year. Right. And I'm like, man, you really, so anyway, I'm like, can they even hear me? Can they, are we just blowing these calls because our ego is telling us that we are dictating? It's almost like I've, people have heard me say, your dad's the best at talking about it too. When we're in Canada and you got the four spinners going over a, over a pea field and you got 400 mallards on top of you. You don't even have a full body mallard decoy out. You just got Canada geese, you know, full bodies. And you're in Alberta, Saskatchewan, or Manitoba, and you put those spinners on. And your dad's like, yeah, you know, those fields are so vast and big up there that these, these spinners bring them to the area that you're at. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, yeah, but we get them over there and we keep calling. And I'm like, does it really matter? Because a lot of times, you know, I've seen mallards just finish right on top of Canada goose decoys early in the morning with not, no spinners out. And when the spinners are out, it's like taking candy from a baby. But still... I tell myself, I'm going to work on this. I'm going to practice. I'm going to work on my negotiation skills with this group of mallards. And I do think that with the call and being able to read body language and having those spinners out there, and I know that they're attracted to those spinners, and I know it's hard to kill them over dry corn or dry peas without a spinner. It truly is, especially when the sun comes up and they can see a lot more in the dark and they're just coming in there in reckless abandon. I'm not saying that you don't need sun to create a better visual. I'm just saying that without a spinner, it gets more difficult to kill ducks over a dry field Absolutely. with just calling. So you've attracted them, you get them in that area. And now I start to look, work on little things like watch this. I want to make sure that they're lined up perfectly in this spot by quacking the right way, by getting, by 
you know, separation call or feed chuckler, whatever you may call it. When they're way out there, I want to try to turn them at this one certain spot because I know if they go too far, it's going to give them way too much leverage on me again to really get in the hole that I want them. But if I can hit them right here and spin them right then, I feel that now they're going to be lined up perfect by the time they spin and they see those spinners again in your decoy spread. Now they're going to be to where all six of us can get a good shot. They're not going to be way over far right to where Chad the lefty's sitting and he gets all the shooting or J Dave's over here with, with Widgeon or one of his do one of your dogs and, and your dad's on the far left and he's getting all the shots. You want to line it up perfect. So I start working on things like that. Timing, watching them. What are they doing? What are they telling me? When are they wanting to be? When do they want to hear me? Yep. It's not just, and in the timber, you set it perfect. You get all these proficient callers because Arkansas is the land of proficient duck callers. And you're like, you're pushing and pulling. It's like this teeter-totter effect where you're bringing them down, but then the other side's pushing down and they're going back up and just get them in a race and follow the guy. And they spin. You want to be live. You want to be, you want to, you want yeah, to make but, sure. But that's fine. That's no different than, and, and you know, and, uh, me personally, anybody that thinks they can call it ducks anywhere else but a dry field the way you call it ducks and it's insane insane because they'll do anything they don't care very rarely do they care um you know that i think you know doing a feed chatter in the timber is very rarely going to wreck your wreck the flock it's going to do it's not going to hurt anything and it may not help anything but it gives you something to do but if you know the the, the, the thing i see Timber as well as as hunting little geese is like with social media now you see these flocks of these big spins of geese in West Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, and these these lessers go out for example and they turn their legs are hanging like they're gonna come and someone is just hammering on a like you already got them yeah, you, you got can them. kill them where they are just relax shut up but the, I, it's got to be ego right? or is it inexperience I think it's inexperience it's it's the fact that it. Either A, nobody's told them, or they've never slowed down enough to realize that it might hurt them more than it helps. Right. You know, and... But, but the argument is this. <clears throat> Calling's fun. And, oh, and, ha and having the mentality or the, or the thought in your head as a duck hunter, if it brings them back of like, hey, man, we called these ducks in and we got them, then I'm all for it. But I, I really think, and, and, and where, I'm, where, where I'm thinking right now is like, Timber, again, it's very easy to paint the picture mm -hmm. because a lot of things in Arkansas happen because of audio. There, it's hard to see decoys. It is audio. It's, it's all audio. And that's why there's so many proficient duck hunters. People mm -hmm. have heard me talk about that, and I didn't come up with that. It's just it's it's talked about all the time by several people in that area, that region of the country. But a lot of people don't even use decoys in Arkansas when they're hunting public areas. where They get in and they get out, and they're all on audio. They break ducks down high in the sun. It's, it's easier to kill them on sunny days in the timber. It's very hard on cloudy days. Not very hard, but it's not as... It's not as easy. No, and it's not as fun, and it's not as no. pretty. But what I've seen is, like, you get them, like, here they come, and now they're over the hole, and they're in a race. Whether it's a man-made hole or just a slit in the woods, you got them. You got you to gotta understand that you got them. They're going to make a spin when they go out, Bring that. Yep. But if you stand on that call and you're got ducks working over you, they're going to start landing behind you. They're going to start landing beside you. They're going to come to where that sound is because that's what they're conditioned to do there. They're yep. coming to sound. If yep. you shut up and let them get over that hole and start to just, you hear that Drake grunt, that whistle, and they're looking, they see the spread. You hit that jerk string a little bit. You can't use spinners in the public areas of Arkansas and private. You can. They're starting to see all the visuals. Once they get down over the hole, they can see them. But when they're way out there, they 
can't see decoys in those trees. No. It's, it's audio. But if you quiet down and let their visual instincts now take over once they get them, and I'm not saying you don't hit them once in a while to keep their attention, especially in the public woods because you got a lot of competition. No. But, but you don't want them landing behind you and turning and spinning and unsafe shots and you're shooting absolutely. over your dog's head and, and it, it becomes chaos. Well, and that's, you know, that, that's one thing. There's, there's definitely a difference between working birds on public or high-pressured ground compared to, you know, well, I, I mean, Oklahoma, Kansas, generally there's nobody in the field next to you ever, ever, Gen for the most part. Let those birds go another 30 or 40 yards before you hit them to turn them around. You already got, if you already got them, you already, I mean, if they're already spinning and doing their thing, squawking, making noise, let them go a little bit further because all they're going to do is you're spreading them out. You give them more time to get lower, right? I, I mean, it's, you know, I understand that in the timber, I mean, I hunted Biomeda every day of the season when I lived in Arkansas. And, you know, you don't have that luxury there. Because if you got them on the treetops and they swing 200 yards to your side, they are going to get shot at by somebody. Um, but, you know, when you're in a big-ass open field, man, don't, don't be afraid to just let them go a little bit further before you hit them and see what happens. Because a lot of times it'll cut a pass or two off of their, you know, landing cycle. I mean. And that comes with experience and being able to read birds of saying, hey. It comes with failing a lot fail, is what yeah. it comes with. Yeah, and you, it, but if you don't fail a lot as a duck hunter, you're not duck hunting enough because I fail. As a baseball player, if you fail seven out of ten times, you're still considered an all-star if you hit right. 300. Duck hunting, I fail miserably a lot. And you're just like, dang it, man, I didn't get them today. I did, And it's all learning to where it only takes one good mallard to bring you back. You know, Tiger Woods said it a long time ago. I could have the worst round of my life. I get on the 18th and I hit one awesome chip shot. I'm going back to the course the next day. It only takes one duck. I don't care if that hen mallard comes rah, 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 and they do it right. It, it, it can bring you back. You can't base everything on a hundred percent success rate, especially in duck hunting, because it's not going to happen. And if you learn through failure and learn through experience and learn to read body language, but not have the mentality that everything is built around my talent on this call. Yes. It's cool that you're proficient on a call. Yes. It's not you personally. I'm just talking about everybody out there. No, I know what It's you mean. great that you can make those sounds. It's great that you've won the meat calling world championships and you've won main street and Stuttgart. I get it. But it's totally different when you start mixing that in with body language and the art of negotiation. And you'd hear that in business a lot, but the art of negotiation with ducks, wild ducks and wild geese is freaking awesome, mm -hmm. man. It, when you're sitting there putting yourself out there of like, hey, I'm literally having a conversation to try to entice these guys closer. Yes, I have some advantages today. I got sunshine. I got a good wind at my back. I got a nice looking decoy spread. I got ripples on the water. I got the chocolate milk effect. I got all my good buddies with me. I had a nice breakfast and a good dinner and a good highball at the fire. That's, all that's a duck camp. But when you just break it down to that final instance of success of getting those ducks to commit and shooting them at 8 to 15 yards instead of 40 yards, you, you have to tell yourself there's way more that goes into it than just being a a good musician because that's really what good duck hunters are duck caller i like it the way you say it duck call operators you don't blow a duck call you operate a duck call you operate a short read goose call it's a woodwind call. instrument woodwind instrument it's just like a saxophone or mm -hmm. clarinet <clears throat> even though your mouth's not applied directly to the wood it's still a woodwind instrument so mm -hmm. i i think that the mentality has to be 
I'm going to go out and listen today and be a sponge and let the birds teach me something. And that's what I've been doing now. And I'm, I'm older than you by 10 years. And I get in the woods this year. I get on the rivers like the Missouri River. I get somewhere. I love hunting rivers. I love the snake, the Columbia. Yeah. I love. It's being, amazing. I love being on river hunts especially long boat rides and finding them and knowing that they're going to feed and you're going to have an opportunity because that's where they're roosting. That's where they're loafing. It doesn't matter because the river is so long that you're not going to bust a roost on a river. So now I'm not saying that they're not going to concentrate on different parts of the river based on invertebrates or based on depth, the water or sandbars right, or whatever. Right. But if they're in Idaho on the snake river, they're coming back to the snake river. You can go in there. And there's going to be traffic. And there's going to be traffic every day. So I'm teaching, I'm learning and I'm trying to to tell myself, hey, it's not about how good, because when I blow a duck call for some people, they're like, yeah, it's good, but do this. And then I start getting in my head like, what do you mean do that? I sound like a duck and I'm like, I'm not, I don't want to be that guy. So like when Chris Sifrio, who you know with jargon calls, mm -hmm. it's like, hey, I want you to do this. I'm like, man, I'm not doing that, what he's telling me, because I had this whole different mentality of my call operation, what I'm doing with the fatty tissues in my mouth, my throat, everything about my diaphragm to my lungs, to yep. my larynx, everything that goes into being proficient on a duck call. I stopped and said, wait, even though I do sound ducky the way I think I do, and even though I can kill mallard ducks, I feel like I can go anywhere and kill mallard ducks in a, in a very humble way. Well, but, no, but, but, it, but if I could take what he's saying and go, Hey, now I got that in my arsenal. Now I got that in my repertoire. And now I'm using a different part of my mouth to execute this call. And it sounds like a completely different duck. Yep. That's the secret. And then on top of that, now you have to have the ability to say, all right, now it's time to interact with a wild animal. And I'm going to drop my ego a little bit and say, I'm not, I'm going to quiet up and learn something from these ducks today and not have to be that guy. That's always what you say, hammering on that wall of sound. Well, and you know, one thing I would say to, you know, the, the newer guides out there and all these, these younger kids that are chasing all these geese and, you know, posting all these pile picks and everything like pile picks are great. Yes. As an outfitter, I, I mean, people expect a pile, you know, but they're also paying for the experience and the opportunity. Um, don't always make it about killing that number, getting to that number, you know, let a flock swing one more time. Just that's how you learn. That's the only way you're going to learn. Listening to you and I talk about it isn't going to teach. Like it may put the thought in your head, but you got to go watch birds work. Take kids on youth days. Turns out then you're not worried about shooting. Yeah. And you learn so much. Because all you have is bird watching. That's all, that's all we are is glorified bird watchers yeah. that happen to like to eat them. Yeah. But I, like I catch myself all the time, you know? In awe. Yeah, and I sit there and watch, and they start landing, and I'm looking around, dicking around, and pretty soon they're leaving, and I'm like, oh, shit, probably should have called the shot on those. <laughs> yeah, and I, and but I, I'm just... But I can't say how many God. people I piss off by not calling the yeah. shot. I'm like, why are you mad? We should have shot them. I'm like, I know, but if we had shot them on the first <laughs> pass, y'all wouldn't have got to see what they just did. Isn't that way better than going out and having another duck to clean? No, man, I want to have a... I want a limit, and I'm like... I understand that. I get that. And I, again, it goes back to the guide and the outfitter mentality. Your clients don't, they, they probably do love seeing the visual aspect of it, but they come there to kill. A lot of a them, lot of a them, lot them come there to kill. Now, yeah. again, if you find that blessed client, that's like, dude, that was so unreal. I'm so glad we didn't shoot into that. Because mm -hmm. if you shoot them on the first pass or the second, and they're getting ready to do it big on the third or fourth, and you don't take the time or have the patience or the know-how or the knowledge or the experience or the instincts to wait for it, 
then dude, I'm telling you, you're, you're, it, it gets so old shooting them on the first pass. It does. Let them work. It does. But that's that, that's like you and I are talking, you know, um, you know, shooting them on the first pass versus it's, it comes, it comes back to failing. If you let them go one more pass and they leave, but, but try to learn something from every flock. You know, I, 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 I learn something every day when I stop learning, I'll quit doing it. Of course. Because it's, then it's not challenging anymore. Right. And you know, I mean, it can be stuff as simple, like birds, birds are landing 15 yards to the left where I want them to. So I go move decoys, but you got to wait for them to finish in order to find out if what you did worked. Right. Yep. And, and I just never stop. I never, I never stop working at it and trying to learn and, and perfect the craft that is waterfowl hunting. Um, but, but you know, it's, it's, it's the failures you remember more than the successes for sure. You know, I mean, I had a lot of great days this year. The best days I had were days that a limit wasn't killed. Those are the days I remember, right? I'm also out there 80 some days in a row, but you know, the days where the specs were super tough and the Canada's were tough. And then for whatever reason, like I, weather didn't change. I don't know what did whether it was a little bit of change in barometric pressure, I have no idea. They'd come in and land 500 at a time. Like, how do you beat that? And then, you know, that particular day, I had a group of guys that were like, boy, you know, it wasn't as good as yesterday. We didn't kill a limit. And I'm like, we're too short. And it turns out we shot at more than five flocks, so you didn't do your job. Because all you have to do is kill one out of each flock, and I'm going to get five flocks in here, and it turns out we're done. Yeah. And you, you, it's funny, you tell clients that. That's another thing I learned from Tim. Because I was getting frustrated guiding on the front range when I first started. And he goes, he goes, hey, bub. He goes, just remember, tell these boys. He goes, your job is to call three flocks of geese in. All they got to do is kill one apiece out of each flock and they're done. And it was like, I'm no kidding. Like so it, it, it makes wh- you realize what a good day is. And it makes people realize... That they have a responsibility too. Right. So what do you do as an outfitter? Back to the beginning of this conversation is like, you you only have a certain amount of days in a waterfowl season. Mm-hmm. You only have a certain amount of birds. You have groups coming in that pay you to show them the quote unquote hunt of a lifetime, which you hear thrown around so much. Um, what 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 if you do have eight guys out there and you've called in four groups that have given them plenty of opportunity to kill their five geese? They're at 15 yards. You have eight guys. There's three shells. There's two shells in every magazine and one in every chamber. You have the ability to shoot three times at each flock. So is it wrong to stand up and go, hey, guys, that's the hunt. I'm, we're ending it. Where are we ending it? You've had your opportunity. Or do you, do you have to press for that limit? Or, or just being one or two short of the limit. What do you, what do you do as an outfitter, as a guide? You know, um, I won't call it at a, at a number of fly, at five flocks, just just because like they paid for the experience. You know, I mean they paid they paid. Let's go hunting. But at some point, when you get down to one or two or even three, like it's like, hey guys, like you know, you guys good. Like we can lay out here until they go back to water and hopefully kill some. Like we've had really good opportunities and you know, you guys didn't shoot that good, but usually when guys aren't shooting good, like I'll start giving them shit right off the bat. Like, you know, I'll, I'll give them some of my shells cause they actually have shot in them shit like that. You know, <laughs> just, 
But I mean, you make it fun because they get frustrated and then it's, it's, it's like, all right, guys, like, you know, turns out all you got to do is kill one. But it's take your time. But John David, it's a business. You're you're basing your livelihood and and your bookings for next year on the ability to make sure that all of your groups have an equal opportunity to have a successful hunt or again, the quote unquote hunt of a lifetime. So if this group comes out there and they ain't hitting their ass, they can't hit water if they fell out of a boat. You're telling me that you're going to sit there and let them shoot into multiple flocks, 10, 15 flocks until you are like, okay, that was a good experience or when is enough enough? And I'm on the same page as you. This is this is the stresses. This is the psyche of an well, outfitter and as a guy. What what's right and wrong, right? What is um, it? Should it be the mature no. leader of that group that stands up and goes, guys, we've we've uh, we've been here enough. We've left our imprint on this field enough. We've only killed seven, but we've shot into seven groups. It's time to go. They're not going to do that. They're there to hunt. They no. want their mentality is a limit most of the time. Right. And and the you know where where we're fortunate where we are is. 90% of our clients are repeats. So I know them. I have a personal relationship with them. We're friends with them. We talk to them in the off season. Like we know them. They've been there. They've had great hunts. You know, I mean, one group, I mean, it's, it's astonishing that, that a group could have this much like they've been hunting with us for eight years. And I think we shot a hundred one day this year. There was uh, 14 or 15 of us, you know, we shot 57 Canada's and a bunch of snows. 42 ducks. Never killed a white goose Oh, ducks. in a peanut field. Widgeons? Mallards and pintails. Really? <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, it was the best on I've ever had there. Um, just, just from the standpoint of, it was one of those days it shouldn't have worked. Overcast, no wind, decent hide at best. And... For whatever reason, it just, it worked. And they'd been hunting in that field for two weeks straight every day. Really? Yep. It was that good? Man, there was, you know, it was, what happened this year because of all the rain, a lot of the peanuts got turned, they got dug, well, they couldn't, it rained on them, so they couldn't harvest them. So they were just sitting on top of the ground and the, the geese were just having a heyday. Like there was, imagine, you know how many peanuts are in a field after it's harvested. Imagine when they dig them and all of the peanuts are in the field. Like it's it's like hunting swath rows in, in Alberta or Saskatchewan. Right? Like there's just it's it's a buffet. And they um but that group I got to talking to them, so we we shot a hundred that day, and they pointed out to me that was the fourth hunt they've been on over ninety in eight years. Fourth. Fourth. Like that's that's insane. That's a nice group of clients to have. They keep coming back because of the customer service, the experience, yeah. the camaraderie. Yeah. And we had we had two good days with them. And then, I mean, you could, if you could script it as an outfitter, you have a decent day the first day, a good day the second day, and just a barn burner the third day, right? Well, that was what happened. Like, you, you can't beat it. I mean, you know. You know how it works. Like, when I was working at Buck Paradise with Grant and Barkley, like those, those were the, the, the greatest groups you had was where they had a, what is a decent hunt in Canada? And then, you know, a good one or an okay one. And then the last day of the day they left, you just burn it to the ground. And that's like, when they're flying home and they're, and they're calling. Yeah. You leave the best taste possible in their mouth. Cause word of mouth is everything in outfitting. It's everything. And like, if you, you don't want a client that goes home and says, 
we didn't kill them every day that you don't care you want a client that goes hey dude the lodging the camaraderie the socialization the pool table the nightlife the people the the the, the cooks were outstanding the food mm-hmm. was outstanding the beds were clean there's so much that goes into keeping people happy that everything that we stress on a daily basis is who gives a flying rat's ass about a limit because I understand hashtag make a pile piles, make you smile. It's all about this whole spring conservation depredation season that people see these huge piles of 250, 300 snow geese. I'm like, that doesn't happen very, very often at all. And it's never going to happen in duck hunting. If you got 10 ducks on a strap, in Arkansas, you can only kill four mallards each a day. Unless if, you're hunting by Amina, and you can shoot three. <laughs> then you can shoot three. You go in there, and you have three guys, and you come out with nine ducks. That's a limit. That picture's still like, people look at it and go, man, that's not a very big strap of ducks. And I'm like, dude, that's a public land limit in Arkansas. So put that into perspective. It, like you It's, guys, it's you, a limit on arguably the most highly <laughs> pressured public land in the U.S., oh, yeah. I would, I, I would guarantee. Where's, where's more hurricane? To the, maybe to the point, hurricane? To, hurricane to the point to where they're trying to keep non-residents out of. Well, no, they are. Different. Yeah, they, they are. They are, and you know, in my opinion, that's weird. Arkansas, we don't Arkansas even get into that. We won't even get into that. It's not a good thing. But you think about this whole mentality of piles and piles and piles. The whole duck camp thing. That's what people have to understand. They have to understand that the the conversations with the ducks are only a little bit of a part of it. There's still so much more that goes into the experience of booking a hunt, going with an outfitter or going and freestyling on your own that it's, it maybe it is easy for guys like us to say, Hey, you got to understand all these small things are way more important than the actual hunt because maybe we've had so many good hunts that our brains are warped. But I truly think that the messaging is there's so much more into this lifestyle than killing a freaking duck or killing another goose. Get the yeah. whole the whole ideology of we need to kill a limit has to go away. Camps everything. everything. What what happens at camp is everything. I mean, look prime example. Anywhere in Arkansas. Buy me to use that for an example because I hunted there for several years and have friends that live down there. When there's no water, those duck camps are still full every weekend on during duck season. You know why? Because it's duck season. The food, the and you go hang out at duck camp, and if you're shooting squealers on the borrow ditches, whatever. But it's it's about being down there. It's it's you know it's a it's a way of life, and and we're lucky in the, in the clientele that we have that that that's what they're about. You know, a lot of our clientele is from Louisiana. So, and I know you've you have a lot of friends from Louisiana as as do I. But like those guys come up, the production isn't the hunt. The production is cooking the gumbo, you know, making their all their, their boot in, like making it's it's duck camp at night is they drive up there to do that. Oh yeah, and have the opportunity. They they don't you get, know, let's and, not and, get and, it wrong. Cajuns and and guys that book hunts up in Canada where they love to kill. Let's not get that absolutely. At, but, I mean, that's why. But it's they not come, what it's right? based on. No. Because that a lot of hunts in Canada are done before the sun comes up or by 9 a.m. A lot of them. And then those Cajuns crack a Budweiser and stand around a gumbo pot and with it, with, yeah. you know, and they're giving taste tests all day long. They're, they're mixing drinks. They're telling stories. They're talking slow. And they're like, you know, my roux and all that. And they're awesome. And, they're, and it's like you look at the lifestyle, the laid back and the camaraderie and the friends and why they're going up there. I know guys that have been going to Canada for 15, 20 years in a row. And they've been there, done that. 
Yeah, they kick their season off that way. The hunts only last a certain amount of time, mm-hmm. and the best part of their days is going home and taking those specks or those or those lessers or those mallards and ripping the legs off of them and getting that bony meat down into that roux and stirring it all day in that gravy yep. and making sure that that gumbo's perfect or that a face perfect. I mean, it's it's the best way to look at it is like, hey, get the ideology out of your head that if you don't kill a limit, that this is not a true waterfowl hunt. Then, and I really think that the, the social media and the popularity of guys that kill a bunch of birds and, 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 and the image that a lot of social media has portrayed, it's got to get back to duck camp is way more aspects and way more components and way more pieces of that puzzle than just piles making smiles. Get yep. that out of your head because it only takes 10 really nice ducks or geese to make an unbelievable meal. And I don't, I love, I love killing them as much as you do or the next guy, but I'm telling you, man, as an outfitter, as a guide, you have to have so many more tricks in your pocket, so many more offerings up your sleeve of saying, Hey, we obviously on honesty is the best thing. We might not kill them all. The weather's not here. The migration hasn't pushed through. You got to come up with other ways to make the trip memorable because they're coming no matter what, unless you get to the point to where you're like, Hey, I wouldn't come if I were you. Right. Well, you know, it's not worth it. We can't get into the fields. They're too wet. There's been too much. Whatever it is, if they're coming, they're, they want to have a good time. Well, and that, 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 you know, that's the other benefit to having longtime clients like, like we do is, you know, they show up, geese are being finicky, a little tough. We go, hey, they trust us to make the best decision, right? So it's, you know, hey, we got a, we got a tank with a bunch of ducks on it. Let's go shoot ducks. And they're like, okay, yeah, sure. Or you go, look, we're going to goose hunt the next day. We're going to let the geese rest for a day. Let's go shoot some sandhills. Okay. You know, but, but it's building that trust that they know as an outfitter, you have to build that trust with your clients. If that's the kind of outfitter you want to be, that your clients trust you to make the best decision for them, for them to have a successful hunt. You know, and then every now and then you get those groups that are just, we came here to do this. Okay. Like you paid for it. Like we'll do it, but I don't think that's the best decision for tomorrow because of the wind or the weather or whatever. Like, you know, prime example, I had a group of guys that, um, well, I've hunted for a long time and, uh, they came down this year is the first year they've come to Texas to hunt with me and, and we were supposed to get like an inch of rain the next day. So, and they came down, they wanted to shoot geese. They're from Kentucky and Tennessee and Louisiana and they want to shoot geese. Right. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm like, here's the deal guys. It's supposed to start raining like crazy about eight o'clock in the morning. So we can go goose hunt. We can go lay out in a field and get soaking wet. Or I got this hole that we can go shoot ducks out of an A-frame in and be done before the rain starts. And they were like, whatever you think. And I was like, personally, I would go duck hunting. It's good weather for it. You know, it's, it's way less labor intensive. We're not going to get trucks stuck, <laughs> which was, the, which was the story this year in Texas, probably in Oklahoma too, just from the, the, the wall, the ground was so saturated. We got so stuck, but those guys trusted me, right? Because I've hunted with them and, and they knew I had their best interests first. Yeah. So we went and killed a limited ducks. And you also have to be cognitive of the other side of the equation too, which is the farmer, the landowner. If it's Mm -hmm. that soaked and saturated on those peanut fields, a lot of them don't want you driving in there, especially if there's winter wheat planted on top of it. You got to be, 
you know, very careful. You got to be very respectful of that land. Can we bring quads? Yes, you can bring quads. I don't want any trucks out there. We might have to pull sleds. We might have to walk. Um, there's a lot of, you know, it, the, the, the point is, is that the best clients are ones that do trust you because they, they do have you, they know that you have their best interest in mind and you're going to make the decision not based on, uh, you know, I'm going to, I'm probably worn out right now. I'm a little tired. I don't feel like putting in the effort. That's not it at all. No, it's about saying, Hey, these ducks are going to be in here tight. Let's give this ground a couple days. The blow, you know, the sun's coming out mm-hmm. or the wind's going to start to blow. It's going to dry out a little bit. It's going to give us an opportunity to get in there. It's going to give us more time to let those geese rest. I'm making the, the decision here and a, and a good group of clientele are going to be like, we trust you. We right. get it. We came here because we've had great hunts, but we also understand that we have great friends here. We've had great experiences, great memories, great pictures taken, great meals. And, and that the, the whole thesis of where I was going today is that when you face a season like the 2018-19 waterfowl season in North America, as an outfitter, you have to come up with ways to make sure that your clients understand that their best interest is all you care about. You might not kill them every day. And I, I, I talked to several Canadian outfitters this year that were like, dude, if it wasn't for the ducks this year, we'd have been screwed because the lessers were so tough. And that's what happened in Kansas. I mean, look at even Oklahoma, like the duck hunting was second to none. Like it was insane. Yeah. You know, Missouri. Missouri probably had one of the better duck seasons they've had in a long time. Northern Missouri. Yes, north central. Yeah. I mean, those guys, you know. The, I think that the ducks saved a lot of people. But there were, on the other side of the equation was like, you hear Arkansas, which is the capital of ducks. They're like, this is the worst season we've ever had. There was only a few select concentrated areas in Arkansas that were consistently got them. Yeah, but they, they went from, from, you know, basically they had. Every duck in the country. What happens what happens here back home in Nevada is they went from famine to feast. Like they went from a bunch of ducks and no water to more water than they know what to do with and a lot of ducks, but it spreads them out. Yeah. I mean, when those, you know what it's like when that white river's out of its banks and Biomita, and then you have all of the sloughs and everything else that starts backing up into fields and that. It's 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 no different than when they flood all the rice fields in California to to rot them time. to rot the rice because they can't burn it anymore. Yeah, you create hundreds of thousands of acres of habitat habitat that's non-huntable. Yep, <laughs> and it spreads. You may have you know five hundred thousand mallards on Hallowell Reservoir down there in Biomita. But when Biomita is out of its banks and it's completely, I mean, just Biomita itself, 33,000 acres, White River's not that far from there. Like, and then you go to all the public wood, the, or the private woods, you know, Five Oaks, um, Jerry Jones Place. Like, you look at just the timber that's around there that's available to flood. It, like, you could put a duck, you could put two ducks every square mile and pretty soon. But there's also some the populations said about, there. Are, are the are the ducks still getting to Arkansas? Is no. the question. No, they're not. They're, 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 they're stopping them. You know, um, good, I don't um, want to say any names. What? But there is a lot of stuff going on with with you know it, five years ago it, or six years, seven, eight years ago it was the federal refuge system. There's too many refuges. There's too many non-hunting zones, and now it's like. You got all these landowners that are building duck factories that mm-hmm. are, are flooding corn, that are buying up tracts of land. Or le- and I'm not saying that don't do it, but something is changing because 
the flyways are being manipulated. Ducks are staying north longer. I have video of ducks oh, yeah. that are that were in the northern part of northwestern North Dakota it, after Christmas. Yeah. Into early January. Yeah, there was what? Uh, uh, what river were they on? Missouri. Uh, the Missouri. Yeah, there was what? 300,000 <laughs> mallards sitting on a hole in the ice? Yeah. And nothing's pushing them off. No, so, but that's the same thing we run into here in Nevada. My point is, is that Look something's... Look at what happens in Hagerman, Idaho. Something's or, saying that something's changing in the duck's belief system of, hey, I don't need to get up and go right now. I know that things are here for me. These guys farming, there's this when I get 100 miles south of here. Something's going on, though, to where there's more refuges being built that aren't necessarily federal resting areas or refuges. They're just private hunting areas no. that are manipulating the flyways. Absolutely. There's got to be. And, and, I, and I'm, I'm a firm believer in um, you know, the federal refuges and that. I, I disagree with them planning non-native food and then flooding it and creating a food source. This is a whole, I brought this up not to get into it because, and I want no, to. No, 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 I, no, no, no. I'm not telling you not to go there, but listen, this is a whole other topic of conversation that there's so many people in America that want to have oh. about what you just said is, is it right that this is being done? Is there a stopping point to it? Is there an end in sight for this? Because dude, I'm, I think there is, there might and, be, and I think it's going to be bad for a lot of friends of ours. But I think you're going to see the day when it's not legal to flood corn anymore. Well, because, it's already because, on the agenda, because, House of Representatives I mean, let, in different areas. I mean, let's go ahead and be realistic about it. What about that as a common agricultural practice? Is it baiting? You're saying that it's not common agriculture to put... So, but Why would it, you flood so it's, it's, corn it's, before you harvest it? But it's it. common to, to flood rice in California just because somebody says you can't burn it anymore? So you yeah, flood rice? because you have to rot it to, to break the... To, to to break the the plant matter down, so why so would that you... they can put it back into the ground and it turns into nitrogen? What surprises me about California is that nobody has started farming crawfish like they do in Louisiana. Wonder why mud bugs? Maybe the mud's not good enough in California. I don't know. Maybe but they're too liberal in California. Like, yeah, probably. I mean, they might. Hurt. It hurts them. <laughs> it, hurts, it hurts. They have feelings too. If you they take, have health care. You we pull don't. the tail off of a crawdad. <laughs> but listen though, like. You, 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 what, it, what, why can't you flood corn? Why can't Because that's not a common agricultural practice. Then why, See, why are they makes, doing it? This then is why, what makes no then sense. Then why to me. are you allowed to hunt in America? Because you're not, you're not, because supposed, somebody in power wrote it in that it was okay at some point in time. That's why it benefited them and their personal agenda is my personal opinion on it. I don't know that for fact, but it, it, okay, so here's a prime example Kansas. Texas, uh, I don't know about Oklahoma, but Kansas and Texas for sure. Why can't you hunt a feedlot? Because it's hunting birds of influence, right? Yep. That's a common agricultural practice to feed cows in a feedlot. Right. Right? Colorado? I don't, I don't think that Colorado, there's any, I don't, I don't. I remember in the early 2000s hunting a silage pile. Yeah. Like I, it, dumb as I wish I was taking pictures then, because there's nothing like having. I don't know if they can prove. I don't know if they. I've I've been questioned on hunting around feedlots. I don't know if they can prove it. But birds of influence, right? So we had a a a game warden in Texas that uh, this was six seven years ago. Said so these ducks. There was twenty or thirty thousand ducks feeding in this feedlot. They were going to a river. Two miles away, he said we couldn't hunt the river. Yeah, because you're hunting birds of influence. So to me, 
and I'm not trying to start some big, huge battle, but to me, okay, if that's how it's going to be written that you're hunting birds of influence, where are we supposed to hunt waterfowl? A hundred percent. Where? hundred percent. That means out of airplanes. So you like, so you can't, so, so you can't hunt them in a wheat field. You can't hunt them on a water hole. Can you hunt them over dry corn or is that, is it, is it dry corn? Are you just saying flooded corn? Flooded corn. Because it's flooded standing. No farmer in their right mind floods a cornfield before they harvest it. But is it baiting if you go into a cornfield and you're hunting ducks? It's baiting if you go in and manipulate it. I believe it's it's a form of baiting. Yes. Okay, so then what's the difference? That cow is 100 yards from me feeding. Mm-hmm. It's a feedlot. Mm-hmm. What's the difference? Nothing. What's the that, difference? That's the problem. That That's the problem with the way these 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 regulations are written is there's this massive... Okay, so you have... Hunting, Hence, hunting a big deep lake, right? Let me stop you right here, real quick, John David. His last words were hunting a big deep lake. We are going to come back with part two of this, and we are going to have a lot of different theories and thoughts and ideology on this because it's a very interesting topic. And I have to make sure that I am prepared for this. I really do because mm-hmm. there's a lot that I that I have on my chest and on my in my head that I want to talk about with this. I want to get a little bit more prepared for this. And I really do mean this. No, no, no. This has been another episode of This Life Ain't For Everybody. My guest today is the one and only John David Stanley. You guys know him as one of the best game callers in the country. I'm talking world duck in Stuttgart, world team duck, world meat duck, world goose in Easton, Maryland. Just a badass on turkey call, spec call, snow goose call. He's an absolute killer. Great friend of mine, great friend of our family. Today's episode was brought to you by my friends at Mojo, Mr. Terry Demon, Mike Morgan, Chuck Smart, Marty Bailey. I love you guys all. Monroe, Louisiana. It's also been brought to you by Tim Grounds Championship Game Calls out of Johnston City, Illinois. Tim, rest in peace. Hunter, we love you. My man, the best goose calls ever made, ever tuned, and uh, we hunt with them religiously here. But again, this life ain't for everybody. I'm Chad Belling. We will be coming back soon with part two of this conversation with my good friend, John David Stanley. I'm glad he was here today, home from Texas after a grueling 80 days in the peanut fields and on the water, waterfowl season. He's headed to Canada to see his lovely fiance tomorrow, and then he's back here. We'll sit back down and bring you part two. John David, thank you very much. Thank you, buddy. Tom, go ahead and hit that button. Leith Lofton, a.k.a. Haas. I'll see you next week in Nashville, NWTF, my man. Tom, please play. What you going to do when the money's all gone? Thank you all. Money's all gone.